Um, we're moving on in Revelation, and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. Um, this has been quite a whirlwind for me in uh, trying to get prepared, and uh, last week is just a giant blur. Um, the entire Sunday is kind of like, I don't know what happened, but um, I'm really glad to hear that he's on his way back. Praise the Lord. Um, you know, in thinking about this section of Scripture, uh, something dawned on me that, and I mentioned it to Seth a few weeks back, and he said, yeah, you should say something about that. But I, I, I always, I tend to tell these stories to myself and or kind of create pictures in my mind. And something that struck me was, um, and, and I'd like you to try to join me in this image and that is, um, imagine, and I don't know why I picked an Australian Aborigine, but that's what I had in my head. So I think you've seen enough movies and the like to kind of get an idea of what an Australian Aborigine might be like. But picture that an Aborigine was born in the outbacks, outback of Australia. He's never set foot in a city or a town. All that he knows is the wilderness of the outback. Now, imagine that that aborigine is transported and he finds himself standing in Times Square, New York City, on a Saturday evening. And imagine what he sees and what he might feel about that. But he is commissioned to take down in whatever format he's able to, take down what it is that he sees there and go back home to the other natives in the outback of Australia and explain to them what it is that he just witnessed, right? The, the traffic and the horns, and I've been there a couple of times, usually just show up and go, okay, we got a flight to catch, let's go. But... Um, We've got the horns and um, just the hustle and the bustle and the myriads of people moving backwards and forwards and the, the guy, the one-man band over here playing on the sidewalk for tips, um, the smells of pizza, you know, just all this chaos, the trash and stuff all over the place and people in the alley doing things that we don't want to know about, all of that stuff. And he's supposed to go back and tell his tribesmen, what it is that he just witnessed. The Apostle John, he was a fisherman. Um, and I'm guessing probably a, a, uh, a humble, meager existence at that. The son of Zeb Zebedee. And then he gets snatched up by this man named Jesus who says, follow me. And he gets up and he follows. What he's tasked to do here in the book of Revelation is a huge undertaking. Consider the aborigine. How do you explain a 40-foot uh, di diameter or a 40-foot big screen TV on the side of a building advertising a Nike shoe? to the tribesmen at, at a tribe when none of them even know what electricity is, let alone a television. 
describe that to them, right? As was mentioned last week, we're in the midst of, in chapter 10, we're in the midst of this interlude that happens between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. It's the same format that takes place between the sixth and the seventh seals back in chapter 7. But John, he uses these images and metaphors, and, they, and he piles them upon one another, borrowing often from Old, uh, Old Testament prophets, and even combining some of them to illustrate symbolically the vision that he has witnessed. Remember, the book of Je- uh, Revelation covers the whole period from Christ's resurrection and his return, but it does this over and over throughout the book with a new perspective that is brought to the fore each time it's gone over. And then finally, remember that the book is not designed to give us detailed, a detailed roadmap of the present or future global geopolitics that are happening today. So we ought not turn on CNN, Fox News, and expect and or hope at some point to hear reports of these two crazy guys that are going around the streets of Jerusalem dressed in gunny sacks, spitting fire from their mouths, prophesying and slaying those that oppose them. No, the point of this book is to offer real comfort and encouragement to the Christians in John's own day. To whom he wrote this message and also to every church from that day coming forward to today. He wrote these things down as we seek to be faithful to Jesus in this hostile and unbelieving environment. And then as we have seen John piling up these images, almost a compilation of metaphors, John is a Bible man. He has learned well from his master, Jesus Christ. As you recall, John is watching and reporting the seven angels blowing seven trumpets, and we have seen the first six blasts, and we've seen God's judicial rebukes and his gracious warnings. Last week, in keeping with that format, we began into this interlude, and now we're on the second half of that, in chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles there to Revelation 11, chapters 1 through 13. I brought some new glasses. I'm not going to throw these. I just, they weren't here last week, but I threw the glasses because they were broken. Anyway, let's read God's word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These 
are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Well, God, this scene that is unfolded before us by the Apostle John, Lord, we know that this is a, um, a part of Scripture that has uh, caused fractures caused uh, all kinds of uh, confusion. Often many would even avoid to talk of it just because it is so, well, mysterious. Lord God, we need your hand upon us. We need your uh, spirit to be with us. Father, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, to consider the truth that is in your word. God, and that through it, our lives would change and we would walk more closely with you and have a greater and stronger understanding of who you are and what it is that you are about doing. I pray that you would do this in your son's righteous and holy name. Amen. Well, it's a good one. Um, so like we saw when we left off last week, John told us, uh, has told us that he was told to eat a, a little scroll, just like Ezekiel ate the scroll and then told to go prophesy. And just like Ezekiel, he, told, uh, he was told to go measure the temple. And some view this to mean that this is talking of a literal physical temple that is yet to be constructed or reconstructed in Jerusalem and so for, and then 
Therefore, they take the entire chapter to be literal, literal as well, so that these events described refer to a literal modern-day Jerusalem. This particular view seems to set aside the whole of the New Testament. It also seems to disregard the symbol-laden nature of uh, apocalyptic literature. That's a bold statement, I know. But one thing I can say, and I do believe, that no matter the view that is held of this section of Scripture, all believers, those that follow Jesus Christ, can agree on this. God, in his mighty, sovereign will, has preserved and protected his people throughout all of history, no matter what this world brings. You see, the temple here that's being talked of is the temple that Jesus Christ has built, being the chief cornerstone. Revelation is in the New Testament. So God's people are preserved and protected. God's people are preserved and protected. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, they will, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Peter also tells us, and we looked at this close to it, this verse, uh, just this morning, Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, John is told in verse 1 to measure the temple and those that are in it, it says, the church. But he is not to measure the outer courts of the temple in verse 2. It is given over to the nations and they will trample this holy city, the holy city, for 42 months. The temple is to be measured, but although a part of the original temple... In this case, the outer court is not to be measured. So what is measured here? It's a way of saying God takes full inventory of his people. They are kept like we see in the book of Jude, that none will be lost. Not a stone missing from the spiritual house that God is building as he fits it together. Living stones, one to another, built on the chief cornerstones. You see, the nations rage and trample the city, even the outer court. And John warns us, and he wants us, to see the church will suffer at the hands of the unbelieving world. But the people of God have been measured. You see, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, you have been measured. You've been logged, counted, and known, cherished, and beloved. And you will be protected, preserved, kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. There is preservation and protection here. God's people are to proclaim the gospel message. <clears throat> so what we have here is also proclamation. The nations trample the temple. John says, for 42 months, the world is on a rampage against the church. And if we look at a very familiar passage in Matthew 28, verses 17 through 20, it says that Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sends his two witnesses, and they are given authority to minister for 1,260 days. That is the same as 42 months, which is also the same as a time, times, and half a time, as we read in prophetic literature and scripture. Three and a half years. This length of time is a number that appears over, it appears over and over again in Scripture. So in a quick survey, we can look back to Numbers 33, for example. There were a total of 42 encampments in Israel's journey through the wilderness. According to Luke 4, in verse 25, there were three and a half years during the ministry of Elijah when it did not rain. And in this section of scripture, we have echoes of both Moses and Elijah. The same number appears twice in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7.25, when it refers to a period of time the beast opposes God and his people. Also, Daniel 12, verse 7, when a figure like the angel of chapter, Revelations chapter 10 also raises his hand to heaven. But in Daniel's vision, he tells Daniel that the end will come after a time, times, and half a time. Further on, in Revelation 12, there is another reference to this number. It's of a, ver a vision of a woman pursued by a satanic dragon for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Over and over again in Scripture, this period of time is used to describe a season of trial in the life of the people of God. So in reading the book of Revelation and considering the New Testament and the entire Bible, these terms of times, days, months, appear to refer to a, a type of time and not a literal period of time. In each of these times or periods, they are describing um, periods of suffering and persecution for the church. 
trial and persecution is not limited to a literal three and a half years in the city of Jerusalem at some point in the future. But trial and persecution has come to the church ever since the empty tomb. It is in this period that Jesus sends his two witnesses. And we are promised trial, are we not? It's spoken of over and over in the Bible. So if you, if you see that in verse 3, it is another image of the church, and that is these two witnesses. And the reason why I, can, I believe I can say that is that the two witnesses are a legal requirement in Hebrew law to present and or is what's required for any valid testimony. Jesus sends his disciples two by two, like John himself back in chapter 10, they and we are sent to prophesy throughout this period of time. In verses 1 and 2, God takes stock of his people and they are kept and protected, and he does so so that we might proclaim him. He keeps us safe like these two witnesses. He sends us out. The church must not use her suffering to avoid her calling to also be a serving church. So look with me at verses 4 to 6. Notice carefully the three key Old Testament images that John uses to tell us about the identity and mission of these witnesses. First, he says, they are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Here we have an echo of Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, the tired and bewildered people of God have returned from exile to a broken-down temple in Jerusalem. They were tasked with its reconstruction and its rebuilding. Zechariah is sent to encourage them by portraying their leaders, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, as olive trees who will provide a constant supply of oil keeping a single lampstand, the people there, with a light that will burn brightly. The olive oil was used as a lamp, fuel, and also an anointing oil. Therefore, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The lampstand is a metaphor for the people of God. Jesus, in chapter 1 of Revelation that we've already looked at, walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches. The lampstands are an image of the church, but John adjusts Zechariah's vision. Instead of the two olive trees being Zerubbabel and Joshua, these two olive trees are in fact the image of the witnesses filled by the Holy Spirit. The witnesses or the church are the two lampstands and the two olive trees, the oil providing light and fuel for light to the world, proclaiming Jesus as the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to a world that is in utter darkness. And then also, in verses 5 and 6, we have another Old Testament image. This time, John, he takes us to two incidents of the ministry of the prophet Elijah. 
As a church bears witness, he says, if anyone attempt to harm them, fire pours out of, his, out of their mouth and consumes their foes, echoing an incident that took place in Elijah's ministry in 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah was challenged by three groups of 50 soldiers and then questioned as to whether he was a man of God. And he told them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And three times, fire came down and consumed these armies. And then in the first part of verse 6, there's another echo of Elijah's ministry. You remember how he prayed to God? And God shut the heavens for 42 months so that there would be no rain. The two witnesses in our text have the power to do the same. Like Elijah in Israel and John in his day, the church witness given is to follow the Lord. Under the protection and the power of God, that is the point. And I couldn't help but think, last week on Sunday night... A group of people sat up front here in a circle and we prayed. And we prayed for the workers on this building that it wouldn't rain, that the weather would be good. It was forecast to rain, but there wasn't a single drop of rain this week. The witnesses, the church, are given the power to do the same. We look at Isaiah 43, verses 9 through 13. It says this. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, from whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God is, was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And we can just stop there. But... You see, we in this country, we may not see the suffering that other saints around the world have seen yet. But the mighty power of God attends to the mystery of his word. So the words of James ought to be a great encouragement to us as we seek to fulfill the mission Christ has given us. James 5, 17 says, Elijah was a man with a like nature two hours, and he prayed that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, we prayed the other night. Hasn't been three and a half, year, uh, three and a half years, and I certainly hope it isn't. But the roof is covered up, and we are not going to get wet. Praise God. So we need to remember the prayers of a righteous person have great power in its working. And then at the end of verse 6, we have the third image. 
They have the power to turn the waters into blood. Now, who does this, of course, remind us of? This time, the reference is to Moses, who held up Aaron's rod and turned the waters of the Nile to blood. He told Pharaoh of the plagues that God would bring if he did not repent and allow the people to go. It's interesting, if we look back at the verse, when talking of this, it uses the word they. They, the witnesses, collectively have the power to do the miracles Elijah has done and the miracles that Moses has done, that they have that power. See, I think this image is designed to remind us that during the days of the church's witness, the 1,060 days, that period between Christ's first and final return, God will vindicate his word and he will defend his people and he will overcome his enemies. God's people are to praise him for his resurrection power. In verse 7, it says that when they had finished their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit and will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. I can only pray that for those who witness for God and in Jesus Christ and then face martyrdom, in their last moments, they recognize the truth of the angel in chapter 10 when he says there will be no more delay, that they will wake to the presence of Jesus Christ. There won't be any delay for them. If we look in verse 7, it is not as though this beast is asleep until now. But I would say, and I believe, that satanic forces in the world will be on an increase at this time. The witnesses are conquered and killed. And it may even appear that the church has been decimated. And appearances can be deceiving. See, many times in history, it has appeared as though the church has all but been lost. If we look in China, for instance, at the rise of communism, missionaries were expelled, and, and, there, and uh, it all appeared that all the work that was done there was for naught, until decades later when they began to open it up again, they found that the church had exploded in revival there. In the country of Iran, it is punishable by death to evangelize. Yet, there is an unprecedented turning towards Christ. The witnesses of the church, the witnesses in the church, are often snuffed out. Its servants martyred or silenced. And their bodies lie in the great city symbolically, Sodom and Egypt. And I think 
possibly here is a reference to the whole of the fallen world. Because I, I say that really because I don't necessarily believe this is speaking in absolute literal terms. I say this because, well, according to the rest of the scripture and the rest of the New Testament that I've looked at and also uh, much of the Old Testament, there's much symbolism here. The world doesn't, does celebrate at the downfall of Christians. I can't help but picture in my mind the video of Christians being marched out onto a beach in jumpsuits and in men in black hoods with knives cutting their throats for the world to see and portions, not all, I know, but portions of Islam rejoicing over the internet at the carnage done to these martyrs. But if you look with me at, in verse 11, it says, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Three and a half days compared to three and a half years is just a little time. Time and again, God has given his struggling church revival, and there is no scheme of Satan that can overcome God's church. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 18, when he's speaking to Peter, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In verses 13, uh, 12 and 13, there is a voice from heaven that says, Come up here. And those that were throwing a party watched as they rose. There was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 died and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. So as to the earthquake, as to the tenth of the city and the 7,000, there's not enough time. There's a lot of speculation there. And I will say this, and I'm certain of it, the, this is imagery of the judgment of God. The part I want to highlight is the end of verse 13. The rest were terrified, and they gave glory to God of heaven. Whether the rest repented and were saved or whether they did neither one but just recognize that this is the one and the true God. They gave God the glory that he's due. You see, we have every reason to praise and glorify our God. So I'm going to close today just like I closed last week. And that is that we have more to do. Nothing has changed. 
But know this, Christian. You are measured, you're kept, you're protected. And you are called to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. To be a witness to a lost and condemned world. The word of God is a flame. As much as it is a light. And if you don't live to see the day of his return, know that it, that it is coming soon. And the resurrection power of God will call you up to glory. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's praise him. Let's pray.